Welcome to the second of a two-part BGSM podcast series on the link between pain and pathology with our expert, Dr. Tasha Stanton. Make sure you check out the first podcast. Today we'll be expanding on it and specifically go on to discuss the pain experience in patients with osteoarthritis, which I'm sure many of you have in your clinic either this week or just part of your clinic cohort. So Dr. Stanton will be known to many of you as a prominent voice in the world of pain science research and is currently based between Adelaide and Sydney. She trained as a clinical physiotherapist before completing her PhD, so she's got a fantastic background to ensure that her research remains clinically relevant for all of us that are listening and work in the clinic dealing with patients day to day. So thanks again for speaking to our listeners, Dr. Stanton. Oh, my pleasure. Yesterday, I had two patients that came into my clinic and both of them had osteoarthritis. One of them had pretty normal imaging, but pretty horrible debilitating pain. The other one had horrific imaging, barely any pain. Why is it that damage seemingly is not correlating with the pain experience with my osteoarthritis patients? Yeah, it's a real challenge when you see things like that come into the clinic, certainly. But what we're understanding um, in, I think, probably the last 10 years, it's, the knowledge has really you know, uh, increased a lot, but that there, there really is there is not a link between how much damage people have on imaging, particularly in osteoarthritis, and the amount of pain that they feel. So what you've seen isn't abnormal. Um, but what it does suggest to us is that there are other things that are contributing then to the experience of pain that, that they do have. And so in the last podcast that I, I chatted with you, I kind of expanded on the fact that, that pain is this protective output that is occurring when we perceive that the body part is in danger, in this case, uh, the painful knee, and that the brain considers numerous uh, different sources of information, including things like your past experience, your your fear, your anxiety, um, other sensory information that's coming from around you, um, your beliefs. And together, it considers all of that together with the danger signal that's coming from that um, painful knee in terms of whether or not an output of pain is is warranted and should occur. But what we also are understanding with osteoarthritis is that there is evidence of changes to the nervous system function themselves that would promote this idea that they may be feeling more pain um, than, for example, healthy controls, and that it's not just solely due to that tissue damage or the the changes that we see in their knee. So some of the changes, for example, is there is evidence that people with osteoarthritis have central sensitization. So meaning that um, the uh, in the spinal cord and potentially supraspinally, um, the system itself is more sensitive. So the danger message coming to the spinal cord is then being amplified and a much larger message is then coming up to the brain, um, meaning that it's reacting to a larger danger signal than is potentially truthfully coming from that sore um, joint. So and examples of a, of a study looking at these is they often use um, things like pressure pain threshold and they look um, for a specific uh, pain threshold that you are pressure that you apply how much does that hurt for different people or how much pressure do you need to apply before people feel pain they look at both those different things and what we see is that for people particularly with knee osteoarthritis um, when you apply a pressure pain threshold it 
takes significantly less pressure to elicit a feeling of pain in people with knee osteoarthritis compared to healthy controls. And this occurs at various body sites, so not just at the knee, suggesting that actually generally their system is sensitized. But it's not only that, because what we're starting to see evidence of is that the systems um, of our body and our nervous system that help with modulating the nociceptive signal or the danger message that's coming up to the brain, those systems also seem to be not working quite right. So an example is that um, we know that a process exists called descending inhibitory modulation. So this is basically your brain um, is able to have influence over the spinal cord and make it less sensitive at certain points. And this response is incredibly important because, of course, it helps us modulate things. And if everything is very sensitive, it allows us to say, hey, like, don't worry about this. It's actually not a big deal. I don't need you to amplify this signal. But in people with osteoarthritis, this doesn't seem to be working properly. So the way that they test this is through something called conditioned pain modulation. They uh, Basically, this is the idea that pain inhibits pain. When you have pain in one part of your body and then you give another noxious stimulus, actually uh, one of them becomes less painful. So the way that they do this is often to use pressure pain threshold. Again, um, measure your pressure pain threshold, point at which you first feel, feel pain, but then have someone put their hand in an ice cold bucket of water and re-measure pressure pain threshold. And if it um, gets better, so they're less sensitive, this is suggestive of an intact descending inhibitory system. But in people with knee osteoarthritis, this system does not work as well. They have significantly impaired inhibition compared with healthy controls. So this might be some, something that you might see. So you have this central sensitization, plus you have problems with inhibition, so decreasing the excitability of the system. People with, with osteoarthritis have been shown to have actually enhanced um, facilitation processes. So it's something we call temporal summation. And what temporal summation is, is we, we all have it to a certain extent, well most people do. If you give a, a potentially noxious stimulus, so kind of let's say a pressure pain threshold on the leg, and you do it repeatedly, for most people, as you repeat it, it gets a little bit more painful. And this is due to um, summation in the spinal cord. It's sometimes called wind up, although I think the neurophysiologists of, of the world would say they're actually not quite the same thing. But basically it's things becoming more sensitive as you repeat a painful stimulus. And interestingly, in people with osteoarthritis, this, if you repeat a painful stimulus, the pain they experience ramps up much more so than it does in healthy controls. So we're looking at a population that have evidence of sensitization that when they repeat something that has noxious input, their pain ramps up even more and they're not able to inhibit. So this then creates a greater understanding of potentially that person that does okay when they do one block of walking. But then when they maybe do two or three, suddenly they get this massive flare response where everything hurts so badly. But the tissue damage, of course, the joint damage hasn't changed one bit. But it's the sensitivity of the nervous system and potentially this inability to inhibit that has changed. So right away, we see that there is a massive disconnect between 
exactly just what's going on in the tissues and the actual experience of pain that people have. And this is literally due to these nervous system changes. How does emotion and fear affect pain? There's a good paper on this, I believe. Yeah, so this um, is actually um, a study that was done by a colleague of mine that is really fascinating. But it's this idea that our neural processes and how we respond to noxious input can actually be influenced very heavily by our beliefs and by things like fear. So uh, an example is uh, fear of harm. When we have an idea that something could be harmful to us, which then increases the threat value of any stimulus that's occurring. So this study, um, this is done by Katya Week um, out of um, Oxford. And it's such a, it, it, every time I read this study, I just have a bit of a giggle because I wish I could have been one of the participants. But what they did is they had people come in and they basically took um, a laser, but like a pen light laser, and they were uh, shone it over their foot and they told people they were doing an assessment to look at you know, how strong and how robust their, the skin of their foot was. And this assessment let them know where they were allowed to zap them with the laser. But of course, it's just fake. It's just a light. It's not, nothing's real. But they zoomed over different areas and they would say, oh yeah, no, this area, this is not safe to, to provide a laser stimulus. Oh, this area, that's, oh, that's a little bit dodgy. Oh, I think it'll be all right, but we're just going to have to watch really closely. Oh yeah, that area is fine. Totally fine. And then what they did is they gave them a, a noxious stimulus that was um, right at the level where half of the times it would feel painful to them and half of the times it, it wouldn't feel painful to them. And then what they did is they zapped the different areas of the skin, the ones that were, they were told were safe, and they compared that to what happened when they zapped the ones that they said, ah, this one's a bit dodgy, not quite sure, we better watch this closely. And what they found was fascinating in that when you thought that there was, there was an increased potential of harm in those skin areas that you thought maybe weren't very robust, despite the fact they're using identical stimuli, you were more likely to perceive a stimulus as being painful. When it was painful, it hurt more and you tended to be more anxious about actually getting this. So, and, and this is all compared to the area of skin where you were told it was safe. So that suggests that actually your fear of harm and your fear of, of injury actually has a direct ability to change what you are feeling. And they did brain imaging along with this, and there was a very different response when you had this increased anxiety and due to the fact that you thought there was a higher potential for harm in a certain area. And that just blows my mind that despite the fact that the stimulus that you're providing is identical, the experience that you have is very different. And to me, that's really relevant then to people who have osteoarthritis, because if you feel anxious or um, you're fearful, then that may have real impact on the pain experience. Again, I love how you can get zapping patients past ethical committees before the first <laughs> podcast. Um, so we know that more than just tissue damage that's causing pain, should we be targeting our treatment uh, areas outside of tissue healing? Yes. I, I mean, I don't want to downplay the importance of peripheral damage messages that are coming or danger messages that are coming up to the brain. They, they are an important part and it is 
critical that we consider tissue healing, particularly when we have um, acute injuries and they come subacute and we're, we're trying to push them on to recovery. But I think it's really important that we look at these other features that we're starting to understand is going on in the nervous system. And I think actually explaining those features to people, explaining the neurobiology of pain to people is really important because it gives people control over what is going on with them. It helps them to understand what's actually happening because knowledge in itself is a really important thing. It helps you frame what's happening in your world. So for example, if you were at home and you heard a noise outside, if you had just heard a newscast that there were a bunch of burglars in the area, you would think very differently about that noise than if, let's say, you had just ordered a pizza. But in a same sort of way, you think very differently about an experience of pain and what, and maybe when it flares up when you do something, if you understand the changes that are occurring in your nervous system versus only having an understanding or a belief that the only reason we can have pain is because we're having tissue damage. So I think expanding our repertoire to really dig deep into some of the, the neurobiological background and the neurophysiology of pain to give people an understanding of why they might feel, you know, things like um, an increased amount of pain when they did this exercise, even though, you know, actually they only did three less the day before and that seemed to be fine. Well, then that leads beautifully into a talk about sensitization. And that also leads beautifully into a talk about graded progression of activity and knowing the point at which for you that causes a flare and getting very good at going right up to that point, but not surpassing it so that you move yourself back by having a flare that doesn't resolve quite quickly. So I think there's a real scope for us to um, develop that conversation with patients. And also, I believe that really gives them, um, it gives them the control, puts the locus of control within them so that they are understanding what's going on with themselves and with some of the symptoms that they might have and seeing a plan forward. And I do think that this is actually really relevant, particularly for osteoarthritis, because there's been some really beautiful qualitative studies in the last little bit that have looked at people's beliefs. And people with osteoarthritis, they often hold beliefs that movement is harmful or particularly certain types of activities are harmful. So for example, that, that walking might not be a good activity. There's also been some research to show that they do have a fear of movement and a fear of re-injury. And so for example, people that are exercisers, people that, that do um, regular exercise and physical activity and have osteoarthritis, their exercises are less likely to hold beliefs that movement is dangerous and that, that activity is actually going to harm them as compared with non-exercisers that have osteoarthritis. They're much more likely to hold beliefs that that could be problematic. And that those beliefs that exercise and activity is harmful are solidly supported by the idea that tissue damage causes pain and therefore more loading probably will cause more tissue damage when really that's not the case. 
And I think then we're potentially seeing people that have knee osteoarthritis that maybe have not exercised. You get the sequelae of weight gain, deconditioning, very, various different things, but then are going on to have total knee replacements. And we're starting to see that the outcomes aren't fantastic. I mean, the range is, I think, somewhere between 7 and 40% of people will have some amount of pain. And I think it's about 15% of them, it's considered moderate to severe after they have had a total knee replacement. So I think it becomes really crucial at potentially that window of opportunity where we can get people moving and see if we can improve function. So maybe less drugs and give the patients the locus control is a great learning point. So how important is the language that we as clinicians use with our osteoarthritis patients? I think it's absolutely critical, actually, because um, given that most people with osteoarthritis will be provided with credible, believable evidence of tissue damage by getting and seeing their, their scans, their x-rays of, of their knee, for example, that already is a feature that suggests you have this damage, the reason you have this pain is because of you have, you have this damage, and it's so bad that your pain is going to be terrible. So as clinicians, we really need to counteract that. And I think the language that we use can actually indirectly, unfortunately, sometimes provide support for what they see on the scan. So for things, we should we be calling things bone on bone? I don't think so, because for me, for me, that conjures up a picture of these bones rubbing together and sounding awful and, you know, actually damaging each other, when actually sometimes you'll see um, x-rays of people that have what looks to be bone on bone, and they have no pain. So we know that bone on bone isn't the only problem. And we, by using that term, then we are actually implicitly supporting that idea that the, this is a problem. Another, I think, term that, that we sometimes use is uh, arthritis is a wear and tear disease. And while we don't always necessarily mean that, okay, uh, doing more things wears your joint out more and therefore tears, injures it more, and therefore you shouldn't do more things. That is often the implicit message that's taken from that. Because if you tell me, uh, you, your, your knee joint, uh, it's a wear and tear disease, well, I should be really careful about not wearing it too much because I only have this, this one knee and I don't really want to get a knee replacement yet, so I need to be a bit careful. And yet when the vast majority of evidence actually shows that strengthening exercises as well as various um, aerobic exercising or physical activity programs, they have been shown to reduce both pain and increase function. And yet we don't want to be then giving this message that they should be avoiding things such as this. And I mean, of course, there's a balance within that. If we have someone that um, uh, is, is doing something that is very, they get a flare, for example, every single time after they run and they're early, um, they have you know, moderate arthritis or something like that that we see in their knee, then our job then is to curtail activity for a while while we then move them up and grade, uh, increase their activity, grade that increase in activity so that they can potentially get back to it. So it doesn't mean that we can't um, modulate or change the amount of activity people, uh, that people do, but I think it's critical that we consider our words. We'll just lean onto your research again, if that's okay. And so can you just give the listeners a brief sneak peek into what the future of osteoarthritis management may involve to close the podcast? So I've been really interested in the last um, couple of years in this uh, idea of, uh, I guess, the, the bi-directional relationship that we actually see between 
body perception and actually pain levels. So to give it a brief uh, foray into some of the experimental literature, it's been shown that vision, just having vision of your skin, for example, vision of your body, it's analgesic. And what that suggests is that vision, information from, from vision, actually then is being combined with nociceptive information, danger messages, to then modulate things and change your experience of pain. And if you make uh, a body part change it in size, that will actually modulate the pain further. So it can be analgesic. And so I've expanded some of that stuff and looked at, and looked at this in osteoarthritis and said, first of all, is there, is there any evidence that body perception is disrupted in osteoarthritis? And then what happens if, if we manipulate how they perceive their body parts? So um, in some of the work that, that I've done, actually collaborating with uh, Tomohiko Nishigami out of Japan, we indeed did find evidence to suggest that in people with osteoarthritis, particularly knee osteoarthritis, that, um, the perception of their, their painful knee joint is altered. It doesn't feel right to them. For some, it might feel too big. For some, it might feel too small. And we see similar things in people with hand osteoarthritis. And so this suggests that actually body perception is disrupted. But then what I have been looking into is, what if we change this? What if we manipulate how their body looks and feels to them? Is that enough to maybe engage some of those inbuilt mechanisms that, that talk between vision and a nociceptive signal that we see that's occurring um, in experimental pain? Does that also, is that mechanism still working in people that have osteoarthritic pain? And the short answer is yes. So um, I use this quite cool system to provide visual illusions to people. So they wear um, video goggles and they see a video of their own leg and knee. They can move it around, see it that, it's own, that it is their own. And then what they do, or what we do, is we get them to watch their knee and we visually manipulate the video. So we make it look like their knee is changing in size. And we usually pair this with um, tactile input. So they'll watch their knee and suddenly it begins to stretch. So it's like their knee joint is being tractioned. And at the same time, we provide just a very gentle pull on the ankle, pulling towards the foot, kind of a traction um, force. And it gives to them then very believable, credible evidence that their knee is actually growing and stretching. And so I did a study um, in, in people and um, had them undergo these different illusions, but they did a bunch of different control conditions as well. So just pulling or pushing on the knee, giving them altered information, and they weren't aware of what the actual real illusion was. And what I found was that they're in people, when they received the real illusion, so to speak, so seeing their knee grow and pulling at the same time, it reduced their pain by about 25%. And what was intriguing is if we repeated this illusion, numerous times, that effect was cumulative up to the point where when we did 10 re repetitions of this illusion, it decreased their pain by about 20 points on a 100 point scale. So what it suggests from this is that vision is really powerful. Our vision of our own body really changes and influences um, what, how, we, how we perceive that body to be firstly, but it also seems to matter to the experience of pain. And so I think potentially as um, clinicians, we can use this to our advantage by merely using things like mirrors, which many of us usually do. But that vision of your body part 
it's analgesic. We know from numerous studies. So we might as well use it to our advantage as best we can during different exercises. And um, I'm interested to see if um, we're continuing to work with some of the illusion stuff, first of all, to see if, if we can replicate it in a new sample, but also to see what happens when we integrate some of these illusions into different exercises. So to see if it, if it gives analgesia, or provides analgesia while people are actually doing movement. And I think it also then becomes interesting to consider what other sensory input may influence the, the experience that people have or their sensations. And so this was another study that um, I was looking at actually a feeling of stiffness. So I had this idea that if pain can actually be modulated by changing different sensory input, in, the, in this case, the last example, it was vision, could we actually modulate stiffness or change what people felt are perceived merely by changing some of the other sensory input? And in this case, we actually chose to manipulate sound. Because if you think of a stiff joint, I mean, it inherently is noisy. There's creaking, cracking, grinding. So sound kind of has a bit of ecological value when you think about um, things like a stiff joint. So this is quite a fun study, but we, were, we took people who had um, feelings of chronic back pain and stiffness. And basically what we found was that, um, first of all, how stiff their backs felt didn't relate at all to how stiff their backs actually were when we measured it using a specific um, a very specialized machine. But what we did find is that how stiff their backs felt related to how protective they were. So we had them estimate, we had applied a pressure to their back and we had them estimate how much force they thought they received. And what we found was how stiff their back felt related very well to how much force they thought they received. People that had a very st stiff feeling back thought they received much more force than they truly did. They overestimated it. So it kind of suggests that this stiffness might also be a protective response as well. And so then what we did is we said, okay, can we manipulate this then? And we added sound. So when people were laying on their tummies, we applied pressure to their back. And what we did is we added the sound of an incredibly creaky door to that pressure applied to their back. And we said, what on earth happens to their perception? And what we found was this, is that if you provide that creaking noise, people become more protective. They start to overestimate how much force they thought they received much more over time. And that's a marker of feeling more stiff. And we found actually really interestingly, the opposite thing where if we gave a sound that decreased their need to protect, so for example, it was a creaky sound that got less and less creaky over time, kind of like oiling a creaky gate. What we then found was that actually people became less protective of their back. They began to underestimate how much force they thought they received, and that's a marker of feeling less stiff. So together, what this suggests is that actually manipulating sensory input about the body itself seems to matter in terms of the sensations that we have. It seems to matter in terms of pain and it seems to matter in terms of stiffness. And so the exciting part to me, I guess, is going down this route is it gives us the possibility that we might actually be able to target a sore or a stiff joint, not by actually you know, focusing on the joint itself, but by focusing on um, how that conscious sensation 
is actually created and manipulating that by providing different sensory input. And that to me gets really exciting because I think it opens up our possibilities for what we're able to provide for people in terms of treatment. Really looking forward to watching this research space evolve over the next few years. Thank you very much for your time and expertise, Dr. Tasha Stanton. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been very fun. You've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Tasha Stanton that's delved into the link between pain and osteoarthritis. I'd encourage you to engage with the BGSM further via our social media channels and the app that brings all of our media, multimedia content and manuscripts direct to your phone. I hope you get to have a physically active week. Mm-hmm.